Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome, welcome. Uh, this uh, should be, well, I like, like to think most of our shows, if not all of our shows, are wonderful adventures of some kind or another. Uh, this time we are going to take a wonderful adventure into the life of another person. Uh, and we're going to talk about the way that story is told. An unusual way of telling the story and maybe an unusual way of uh, using the podcast form. Uh, we spent a lot of time thinking and talking about podcasts here. But Jessica Harper, um, a well-known actress, has uh, used the podcast to create a memoir, uh, which I think is a, a fairly unusual use uh, of, of the podcast form. And, and her use, her particular way of approaching this, I think, is also uh, wonderfully idiosyncratic. Uh, we should say Jessica Harper is an actress, author, songwriter. Uh, she essentially is doing all of those things as the creator and host uh, of the memoir as memoir as podcast that is known uh, as Winnetka. So, Jessica Harper, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. Um, I should say that I, we have sort of a personal connection. I guess what, my college classmate is your brother-in-law? Brother-in-law, yeah. Scott Sherman. Yeah. When he first started missing, mentioning Jessica Harper, I said, wait, my Jessica Harper? My <laughs> Jessica Harper? You know my Jessica Harper? Uh, I'm in particular a big fan of uh, My Favorite Year, where you are the ingenue. Uh, we should say that Mark Lynn Baker has also been on this show. So oh, that's since, fun. Since yeah. P- Peter O'Toole is gone, we, we have all we're going to ever get out of My Favorite Year. Yeah. So I, I want to begin first with this story of um, your family and having written a memoir myself, I know that there are complicated choices that you have to make, particularly if there are stories that have never been told before. Uh, there seem to be a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> and, uh, so maybe begin with just what's the impulse? What's the impulse to just let all this stuff hang out there? Well, that's a really good question. Like, why does anybody write memoir? Um, I I was uh, it was suggested to me actually that I do a podcast. Um, I was I was working for an online magazine called Purple Clover, and they wanted me to do a podcast for them, and they suggested I do it about my family. And I thought, how could that possibly be interest to anybody? Um, but then I talked to my husband about it, and he said, oh, no, he knows my crazy family quite well. And he said, no, 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 this would be very interesting. <laughs> and I think the truth is, like, I think actually every family has an interesting story. I, I absolutely believe that. It's a question of locating that story and telling it in a way that's compelling. So I sat down and thought about it, and I and after a few months, I found more than one thread that I found really intriguing in my own family story. And um, and as I say, I do have some very interesting characters in my group. Um, there are six kids in this Harper family and uh, a couple of parents who are unusual. And um, and so I thought I could actually uh, – I, I thought I could actually do this. And I – the reason I wanted to do it, I guess, I mean, the reason anybody wants to do a memoir is I'm not really sure why. Why? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's so many. Uh, it, it's a minefield, obviously. And you have to be very careful and you, know, you have to be balance the truth with what your family will tolerate, those who are still alive. And um, so it, it's just it's a it is a very strong imp- impulse to tell your story. And 
I can't really answer why anyone would possibly undertake it, except that I, I was really compelled to do so. Yeah, I, I have. I think one of the reasons that memoirists do this is to teach themselves something. You know, I feel as though when you're working on a memoir, it, it's it's kind of like as you look at everything that constitutes your past, and some of it is stuff that you knew and you just lived with for a really long time and it didn't seem all that strange. Um, I'm an only child, so I couldn't really cross-check things the way that you've been able to do with your siblings. But it's also, it's, you sort of, it's, there are other things that you kind of pull out or pull out of somebody or you read a letter that you've never seen before. Yes. And it's like a Stephen King novel or something, <laughs> except it's your life. A really gnarly Stephen King novel. Yeah, no, it, no, there is absolutely that. There is the impulse to learn more about your family. I learned a great deal from doing the project, and it took me three years to do this podcast. And during that time, I did get to know a lot about myself, my relationship with my siblings, their relationships with each other, and above all, about my parents. Um, and uh, and what was most interesting also, I had the you didn't, but I had the benefit of having five um, siblings to bounce this off. And off of, and um, I learned that, you know, it gets even more complex and interesting and possibly confusing because people do remember things differently. Yes, yes. And you, you actually use a, a joke at one point, a joke that your father used to tell all the time, and you have all of your siblings in this kind of Rashomon-like sequence yes, exactly. try to tell the joke, and they nobody can tell the joke the same way. Right. Um, I, I, we're going to play a clip in just a second, but before I forget to bring this up, I think another thing that's interesting about this uh, project is it takes us back to a time when people thought about child-rearing differently than they do now, and, and that, you know, we always talk about, all of us from the same generation talk about how there wasn't some kind of organized soccer league with uniforms. You just, you know, went out and found some friends and wandered yeah. around the neighborhood and did whatever you were going to do. But there's a way in which, I mean, one of the stories that sticks in my mind is that your younger sister at age seven, I think, was... Um, just left to her own devices to get home from school just because yeah. there were a lot of kids and also because parents didn't really think, well, who's going to take Lindsay? You know, I mean, yeah. it was Lindsay's problem. Right. <laughs> she got, I'm laughing. <laughs> it's not a thing to laugh. <laughs> but she did get kidnapped, basically, right? She did. Yeah, actually, actually, she was only in kindergarten. She was like oh, five or six. Yeah. Smaller than and that. she, yeah, because there were six kids in the family, the youngest of whom were a set of boy twins. So my mother was, needless to say, preoccupied. And so poor Lindsay uh, was kind of fell between the tra- cracks and had to walk herself to kindergarten five or six blocks to and fro. And what would you do? Well, this lady comes up to her and says, Hi, honey, your mother said I could give you a ride home and we're going to go to the toy store on the way home and I'll buy you a toy. <laughs> well, that duh, okay, get in the car. You know, you would. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless you had been really strictly informed that that was not a good idea. Um, so she did. Yeah. And she did, the outcome was... I should warn people or advise people the outcome actually was okay. But, um, yeah, it, it was a time when uh, when things were pretty loose as far as that was concerned. Right. It's, it's one of those stories which does have a very benign outcome, but also the hint, the possibility, the kind of mm-hmm. multiverse possibility of a far less benign yeah. and much darker outcome. And actually, it's interesting, too, because you were uh, – the first time I think I ever saw you was in Stardust Memories, the Woody Allen movie. And Woody Allen, when he was a standout comedian, used to – for a while, he ended his act by saying something that his mother used to say to him when he was growing up, which is, you know, if you're ever walking down the street and this man in a black car comes up and he gets out and he tells you to go with him and that he'll give you all the candy and presents that you want. 
response, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, so I, I, I think we should, should play a clip. Uh, this will give us – one of the nice things about this uh, is that um, your family, including your mom, uh, seem to be willing to have some of these conversations with you. So we're going to hear a little bit of you and your mom from episode six. Some months ago, my mother gave me an article that she'd found from the 1950s that offered tips to women on the proper way to welcome your man at home after a hard day's work. She read me those guidelines, and her comments on them revealed that she had fooled us all. While back in the day she had seemed to be that era's model of a perfect housewife, she was actually downright subversive. Prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you will be refreshed when he arrives. Meanwhile, the kids are throwing their blocks out the window. (laughs) His boring day, well, if he's so bored, you should change jobs, probably needs to live. Prepare the children. Make sure you have just one. (laughs) Be happy to see him. Greet him with a smile and be glad to see him. One more mouth to feed. Have dinner. (laughs) Have dinner ready. He doesn't care a thing about dinner. He wants his drink. Most men are hungry when they come home. Here you are, meatloaf, mashed potatoes. (laughs) Stuff it down because I worked hard on it. So your mom really is kind of a hoot. Uh, she is, yeah. But she's, there's also a sense in which you guys, your mom and you and your five siblings are sort of the, the settlers in the covered wagons uh, drawn into a circle mm-hmm. and uh, riding around the outside of you on a horse shooting his pistol in the air is your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, your dad is at times uh, um, scary and violent and uh, maybe even some of the stories that you guys got used to land with listeners uh, with an, an even deeper thud. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably right. Well, he was, uh, he, you know, he he had, he came out of World War II, as did almost all men of his generation, uh, or certainly an awful lot of them. And um, he was of that generation, the greatest generation, where the expectation was that you would celebrate this glorious uh, accomplishment, which was the winning of World War II, and move right on to join the economic boom that was happening then, Um, get married, put on your fedora and grab your briefcase and get on that train, commute to your job and start having babies. And there was no pause to process what they had been through, nor any acknowledgement that what they had been through was anything more than just a fabulous um, experience. And of course, all of them um, had traumatic experiences during the war. My father was in the South Pacific. One story that I tell, uh, that my brother tells in the podcast is about how he was in a foxhole with his buddies, and then he went out to go pee over in the woods, came back, and his a shell had gone into the foxhole and blown up all his buddies. I mean, those kinds of things, as we know, happened all the time. So these men came back from the war and, again, were just thrust into... Um, good times in America without any discussion or any consideration of what what was not called at the time PTSD or um, and and my mother says he had PTSD and that uh, he was therefore enraged a lot of the times he would have these unpredictable fits of rage 
and which impacted our lives a lot. But, you know, in retrospect, of course, and again, having done this project and worked on it for so long, there's lots of room for empathy here um, on the part of all of us. But when you're a small child, obviously, that doesn't occur to you. It's just kind of like, who is this scary person? Right. He he does seem... Um, uh, scary, and and he hits his children, and he hits children who are uh, considerably younger than we usually think is acceptable. If you think it's acceptable at all to to hit children, but there's also there's this scene, and I'm not going to see what it is because I don't want to wreck things for people who who listen to Anetka. But there's a scene where one of your siblings stands up to him, uh, or a little bit anyway, and he kind of cracks. And, you know, there's that Rilke line about how every dragon contains a princess wanting to be saved, that everything ferocious mm-hmm. uh, and, and frightening and dangerous contains something helpless, uh, wanting, wanting us to save it. Uh, and that's there in that moment. Suddenly, you know, and we're sort of uh, quite a few episodes in at this point, we see this person that way for the first time. He's not just this slapping machine. He's got his own vulnerabilities. Yes, he does. And he was greatly impacted, as we talk about extensively in the podcast, um, by his own father, who was uh, the same kind of person, very, very tough, but also, as you say, had this inner, um, this vulnerability that he also is also exposed uh, during the course. So, so it's, you know, one generation to the next um, passes these things down. One of the thread threads that I that I found most interesting when I was exploring this was how it is uh, our responsibility as we go along to try and make corrections to these uh, things that are passed down generally, generationally. In my case, it was not only the, the way f- um, fathers treat their children, but also um, there's a threat of racism in our family that is, um, well, I, I don't think I'll say more because right. you haven't heard the last three episodes yet. Right. So I'm just I'm just letting the apparently uh, Jonathan McNichol find a way to listen to everything. I'm just letting them drop uh, in, onto my uh, iPhone feed. Good for you. So I'm on episode seven here, um, and I know there's some big reveals to come. Um, uh, just, just so people can get a little bit more of a flavor. And I think one of the fun things about the uh, podcast is also getting to know some of your other family members. Uh, we're going to hear, I think, uh, two of your brothers. This is an episode that I have actually not heard yet, but there's a little clip here from episode eight. Meanwhile, things were going less well back in Greenwich, Connecticut. My younger siblings were having much less fun than I. Sam and Charlie were installed in an all-boys school. We went to the school called Brunswick, which is, I think, a very prestigious school. But it was, uh, back then, it was like a Dickens novel. Charlie had to lie in the hallway, and the upperclassmen were instructed to walk over him, walk on him as they went down the hallway. What was that for? Talking in class or something. And so it was. We were stepped on time and time again, physically and emotionally, by this very abusive school, Brunswick. I think he got caught shooting a spitball. Big pen, in those days, you could take the ink cartridge out and make a really good pea shooter, and he'd shoot the, <laughs> shoot the spitballs with the big pen. And he got caught doing that, so the teacher made him put the big pen on the floor and roll it out of the classroom with his nose. I mean, I don't know how they thought that stuff up. So I, I want to, uh, first of all, yeah, these guys are a lot of fun. I mean, they're a little uh, scary in their own right sometimes when they're uh, turning into a Winnetka crime wave. Um, yeah. 
they manage to, to create an awful lot of mayhem and uh, chaos around them when they're not being controlled by the Brunswick School. I wanted to ask you, though, uh, I, I, I was going to ask you this a little bit later, but since it's there right at the top of the clip, uh, I'm interested to know how you, as a performer— you you did you do everything on this podcast. You write it, uh, you narrate it, or you do more than really narrate it. You do the Geico commercials. You write music. You perform the music. Um, I mean, it really is uh, quite a tour de force. But uh, you know, there's a way in which, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing something that I typically don't hear, which is a lot of your delivery is kind of a husky whisper. There's a sense in which. You know, sometimes I listen to podcasts before I, I go to bed, and there's mm-hmm. Jessica Harper is suddenly kind of confiding me in me. I don't know if you did this intentionally or not, but it's an unusual delivery. It is like you're telling me and everybody else a secret. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Well, I just, I, you know, it's, I, as you know, a very, very personal project, and I felt it was important that the delivery express that, that it was personal. And that what I had to say was really my truth. You know, it was really coming from my insides and into your ear. I wanted, and the the nature of the delivery needed to reflect that. I wanted I wanted it to be an intimate experience between me and the listener, as I think I love to listen to podcasts that have that quality. And um, as I say, because I want them to feel how true this is and significant to me, and because. Otherwise, I don't think it will resonate as well with them, um, with the listener. Yeah, no, that that um, totally makes sense. Um, I guess the other thing that I'm curious to know, what every memoirist has to cope with, and you've already alluded to this in our conversation, cope with the question of the remaining people who have vested interests, who are stakeholders in the story. And so did everybody have kind of veto power over anything? Or did you say, did you lay down some ground rules in terms of what people were allowed to object to? How did you navigate everybody's interest in telling the story a certain way? I, first of all, I ran it by my siblings. Well, I have, I have a, an older sister who's not really that accessible. She's sort of a little bit disconnected from my world and from the world of most of my siblings. So um, I had less communication with her about it. And then I chose, in that case, I chose to use material that she spoke very sparingly. And she, so she sent me a, a story, which I, I think you may have heard in episode yes, seven yeah. about yeah. her civil work as a civil rights. Right. So, you know, if, if somebody isn't well, willing to tell that story in general, I didn't explore it myself. Um, but I didn't get any of that Actually, people, all my siblings were incredibly generous, willing to tell everything and very supportive of the result. Um, So, and, you know, when I spoke to my mother, I was careful to, I wanted her to say, for example, those things about my father that might be disturbing, which she did volunteer. Um, I didn't want that to just be me telling on my father. I wanted my mother, my mother's tacit imp- uh, approval by the fact that she was willing to speak about it herself. So I just tried to navigate it that way to make sure that the words came from others in my family, um, that the story was fully supported in that respect. So, um, so that, you know, again, it's not just me telling my side entirely, although, of course, ultimately it is my perspective on things. But um, 
I tried as best I could to to honor what you know their particular viewpoint in in telling these stories. So this uh, podcast derives its title, of course, from Winnetka, Illinois, where Illinois, where you grew up. But although it begins, interestingly enough, the first place that's mentioned, I think, is Old Lyme, Connecticut. So since right. I'm sitting here in Connecticut, tell me about that. <laughs> well, my parents loved Connecticut. They ultimately they spent the last thirty years of their life in Connecticut. When my father, um, <clears throat> as uh, as as you'll hear in episode eight, when he moves the family away from Winnetka, finally the um, first place they went was Greenwich, and then um, and then they moved into New York. Um, but they all, they had a country house in Kent for a long time, and then uh, as I say, when he retired in his early sixties, they they moved up there eventually full time to uh, to Lyme. And um, so we all spent a great deal of time up there. Hmm. Many of us got Lyme disease, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and um, and we all loved it. It was beautiful. And the, um, unfortunately, when they passed, my father in 13, my mother in 16, uh, we sold the family house up there. So we're not going to be visiting as often. But uh, it was a great, a great place to spend time. Well, we will miss you. Um, so um, I think we should take a break. We'll, we're going to come back. I do. I think people do want to hear about some stuff that's not particularly in the podcast, uh, things about uh, your movie career. Uh, so why don't we talk a little bit about that and a little bit more about life in general. Question. Uh, is it my imagination, or, or um, you've been kind of looking at me all night? I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know. Does it bother you? No, no, no. I, I mean, I was just wondering, you know, what's. I, I can, I've never seen such a sexy classical violinist before. <laughs> you mean that I, usually they're escaped Hungarians? <laughs> no, I'm from Winnetka, Illinois. Are you? Yeah. Funny, because you remind me of somebody. It's the strangest thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's our guest, Jessica Harper, in Stardust Memories. She plays Daisy. Woody Allen plays Sandy Bates, uh, who's uh, talking to her there. And you get to uh, name check Winnetka, Illinois. I assume that was something that was <laughs> negotiated. It was, yeah. He took a, he took several things from my, my life in that script. It's interesting. I remember when he first... Um, asked me if I'd liked this role, which was just I was breathtakingly excited about. Um, and he came to my house and he sort of wandered around the house looking for clues, mm-hmm. um, because as you know from his movies, particularly I guess Annie Hall, he likes to draw on the actors' actual lives a little bit to inform the characters in, in uh, that he's got them in in the movies. So he he came to my house and he saw he saw that I had a violin. Mm-hmm. And I pretended that I actually knew how to play the violin, which in fact is not exactly true. <laughs> but anyway, so he made me a violin player in the movie, and um, and then he and I wore a lot of my own wardrobe in the movie, and I also was from Winnetka, Illinois, in the movie, which 
Um, I'm now making, I'm now fully outing myself as being from Winnetka, Illinois with this podcast. Yes, I think you've left no room for doubt (laughs) about where you're from. Um, You mentioned Annie Hall. You actually turned down a a part in Annie Hall. Well, that's true. It was um, a small role, although some would say there was no such thing. Um, but, But I was at this very same moment offered a role in a an Italian horror movie, some people might say, made a dubious choice. But that horror movie is called Suspiria, and it's directed by Dario Argento. And it meant going to Italy for four months and appearing in this wild movie directed by... Dario was considered sort of the Alfred Hitchcock of Italy at the time. And it didn't... It, it And then it, it came to the States and went rather quickly away, but... Over the course of 40 years, it's become an enormous cult movie and is now regarded as one of the top 10 horror movies ever. And so I've been sort of, um, you know, riding on the <laughs> on the celebrity of this movie. Uh, and not only that, but then last year, uh, Luca Guadagnino, the director mm-hmm. who some probably know from Call Me By Your Name and many other wonderful movies, made his own Suspiria. Sort, I, I wouldn't even say it's an homage to the other one. He would explain it as the fact that when he was 15, he saw the original Suspiria, and it freaked him out, A, and B, made him resolve that one day he would do his own Suspiria, and he did. So it came out last year, starred Tilda Swinton, Dakota Johnson, and they asked me to do a cameo in it since I had been in the uh, in Dario's version of the movie 40 years before. So actually, let's hear a little bit uh, of the original Suspiria. That poor kid ending up like that. I can't even think about it. I heard you saw her yesterday evening. Uh Uh-huh, outside the school. She was acting very strange, mumbling to herself. She really felt terrible when they kicked her out, but she really deserved it. There was so much noise. God, was she difficult. She was saying things that made no sense. She was always arguing, causing trouble. Secret. Iris. What? Uh, I remember she mentioned the word secret. And then she mentioned a flower. The iris, I think, or a lilac. Secret flowers? What's that supposed to mean? I don't know. Um, we should say the other actresses' uh, lines are dubbed because the, the the style here was that everybody acted in their native language and then the languages were kind of unified depending on which country the film was being released in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we generally – I don't know how it works in Italy now. I haven't worked there in years. But yeah, they shot without real consideration for sound because it was all going to be dubbed later. So there are very very few scenes in which actually the the sound, the original sound was uh, used. I did a lot of looping. <laughs> so I, I I think one of the realities of your career. I actually was reading articles about you to get ready for this. There was an article from an, I think an Arizona newspaper that said cult actress Jessica Harper, and I thought, well, that doesn't really exactly sound right, cult actress Jessica Harper. But it is true that the movies that you've been in are often movies that people have a tremendous passion about. Uh, but it'll be about that particular movie. In other words, P I. 
I'll be honest with you. I don't. I, I don't want to be freaked out. Uh, and so I got a little way through Suspira and, and I thought, I'm not going to make it. Um, <laughs> and so I watched all your other movies. But um, it, it does seem as though, you know, people who watch Suspiria will have incredible passion about that. Maybe some people, somebody who's more of a Woody Allen fan will have a passion about that. But one of the nice things is you haven't made very many movies that people aren't passionate about anyway. People tend to really care about these movies. I, well, it's 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 really odd because uh, there are these movies that I've done that, as I say, when they, they open and they bomb, and then uh, I mean, <laughs> I, remember, I remember appearing on the Merv Griffin show many many years ago, a talk show that used to be, and and uh, you know, sitting there talking with them, saying, you know, everything I'm in just flops. I don't know what my problem. I probably shouldn't have said that on national television. <laughs> but it did seem to be kind of a common thing. But then as you s- people hang on to them. I mean Suspiria most fiercely mm-hmm. because it has it's just, it is incredible what what kind of mail I get from people and and um and and also um Phantom of the Paradise is another one that some of your listeners may have heard of, but it also has a huge cult following. So um yeah, and then, but on the other hand, there are some that people simply passionately hate, and that's the end of it. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think another movie that's in the sort of love it or hate it uh, is Pennies from Heaven. I was actually uh, on the pr- lot of the press tour for that, where Steve oh. Steve Martin and Dennis Potter and some of these other people, yeah. and you could sort of see that this was going to be an issue. Yeah. Um, that pers- first of all, Steve Martin was coming off the jerk, so yeah. people thought it was going to be something like that. It was far d- darker and but in a little bit more uh, cre- and creative in a different way. But it wasn't a movie that resembled a lot of other movies, uh, and people tend to look for things that resemble something that they like. So you could yeah. you could sort of see that. I, I do want to quickly say that I mean. I mean, my favorite year is one of my favorite movies. Uh, it's you and the amazing Peter O'Toole and uh, Mark Lynn Baker, who's from around here, so I kind of know him. Uh, and let's just play a little. We should we should say also that it is the story uh, of a guy who's kind of a lowly uh, person on a uh, working on a 1950s TV show. Uh, his job is to get this incredibly. Uh, out of control uh, actor named Alan Swan uh, to actually not be drunk and not be out of control and to do the stuff that he's supposed to do. He's kind of an Errol Flynn uh, type guy. Uh, his uh, this young fellow's other problem is that he's in love with this uh, beautiful young woman who doesn't seem to be entirely reciprocating his affections. So let's hear uh, all three of you um, talking uh, about that. Eyes. It's always in the eyes. You. I would like a word with you. Benjamin, uh, we're in the middle of an interesting conversation here. Oh, I bet it's real interesting. What's the subject of this interesting conversation? These eyes. They're Merle Oberon's eyes. Merle Oberon's? Oh, and what's Merle doing for eyes? Using Catherine Hepburn's? Uh, uh, excuse me, Alan. Excuse me, Alan. What is the matter with you? Me? If you're going to fall for every movie star who comes on the show, what kind of a future are we going to have? The same as we have now. None. Wait. Give her a head start. It gives her the illusion she's being chased. So the premise of the scene is that... uh, 
that uh, Peter O'Toole's character, Alan Swan, has turned on his continental charm and got you into kind of a, a little melty state. I, you know, my sense watching that movie is that Peter O'Toole himself wasn't really too far from the character that he was playing. Very so, close yeah. to it. Yeah. So what was it like uh, having him around? What was it like uh, having that kind of exposure to him? Oh, my God. It was just like, here I am with Lawrence of Arabia, for God's sake. It was so intimidating. Um, You know, he's just that beauty. And even even then when he was older, he was gorgeous and and. As his in his character, he was would wear smoking jackets and he would be smoking, and. striding around like the movie star that he is and, you know, always hitting the marks, always knowing his lines. And I think somewhat disdainful of the American way of, wait a minute, I need 30 minutes to go and discover my motivation. You know, that kind of disdain for American methods. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I, th- I think it's like that Lawrence Olivia used to say, just know your lines and show up and hit your marks. And I think, he, anyway, very, very professional Although I heard some stories later that would make your <laughs> yes. hair curl. But I don't think I'll talk about them to your lovely audience. Um, in any case, at the time, I was very intimidated and a thrill of a lifetime to be standing, have him staring into my eyes and calling them Merle Oberham's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jessica Harper, uh, in the few minutes that we have left here— um, so there's a big reveal coming up on the podcast, Winnetka. I haven't gotten to it yet. I don't know what it is. But there's also a way in which at the beginning you tease out of the 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 full life story of this whole family. And you mention a whole bunch of different things that came to happen or children out of wedlock or mention all kinds of stuff. And it makes me think this 10-episode podcast isn't going to contain all that. You have an awful lot of stories to tell uh, that, that probably extend well beyond wherever episode 10 stops. So is there going to be uh, – do you like this form enough to do more of it? I love the form. I love doing this, uh, doing audio. Um, and I love the directions that podcasts are going in and, and all kinds of audio going into the direction of telling dramatic stories and, you know, long-form nonfiction like this. It's just re- – I find really appealing. Um, whether I will do it again right away, I don't know. I, I, I have two ideas about – about um, you know extending this story or leapfrogging over the next decade maybe and picking it up later in life. So, uh, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see if uh, I, I'm working on another project right now and an acting project. We'll see if I can you know get my thoughts together and make another podcast happen. But I I would love to. I mean, there's a way in which it's got to be satisfying, um, although also challenging, in, in that the way that you decided to construct this podcast, it really kind of taps every single thing that you can do. Well, I, I shouldn't say that because you're also a very accomplished cook, I happen to know, and you do cookbooks, so <laughs> that wasn't really involved in here. But but I'm, but in terms of your own delivery of this material and uh, uh, essentially directing other people to deliver material, mostly family members, uh, writing material, polishing it, uh, drawing out some of the humor uh, in some otherwise dark and complicated situations, uh, writing and performing music for it. I mean, I always say that it's a good day when at the end of the day you feel as though the world asked you to do all the things that you could do, that it must be a horrible feeling people who go home and nobody asked them at all to do the things that they know that they're good at. Mm-hmm. So I, I would imagine there's something kind of enticing about this because you have so much control and so many chances to do things you do well. 
It, that's exactly right. I feel incredibly lucky, too, as you said. Go home at the end of the day having exercised not one passion but several all in the course of a day and doing it under my own auspices, completely in my control, not having – I don't have a boss. It's just lovely. <laughs> so, um, so that's – yes, that's a huge part of its appeal. You get to do whatever you want, and you don't have to audition. Even, as you know, to create a podcast, you don't have to – it's not like you have to get a publisher if you're a book writer. You just make the damn podcast. <laughs> so um, having that kind of control and, and, uh, and being able to do it every day is really appealing. Jessica Harper, so great to talk to you. The podcast is called Winnetka, available on podcasting platforms. Thanks to Jonathan McNichol for producing this show today. Thanks to Kion Wolf for running the board. Coming up is Nicholas. Who's going to tell us a little bit about the state of the podcasting industry? I have to tell you, Nick, because there was construction uh, on his street, uh, stepped into the bathroom to talk to me. We recorded this earlier today, and there may be a little bit of a problem hearing him. So, but bear with us because he's got some pretty important information. So having talked now to Jessica Harper about Winnetka, her podcast, I thought it would be appropriate, particularly because there's a lot going on right now and he's kind of been covering the, a lot that's going on, to have Nicholas Kwa, the editor and publisher of Hot Pod, a newsletter, the newsletter, in my opinion, about podcasts. So first of all, welcome back. Good to hear your voice. My pleasure. So let's start with what is called the Infinite Dial. This is an Edison research project uh, that looks uh, at the popularity of podcasts, the adoption and downloading of podcasts. Um, I, I, based on your writing about it, I haven't actually looked at the raw figures myself, but it sounds like what podcasts are not doing is plateauing yet. The growth is still there. Right. If anything, this past year has um, seen a jump that's been pretty unprecedented. Um, I think Todd Webster, Webster um, who uh, is the um, sort of one of the main per- people preparing the report, has sort of mentioned that in his sort of like decade plus long period of covering uh, podcasting, he's never seen a jump in audience numbers like this. Um, and this is across the board. It's across age groups. It's, uh, it's across demographics. Uh, it's also across sort of uh, user stickiness. So um, the, there have been more Americans who have tried podcasting. There are more Americans who are sticking around. And it seems that this uh, isn't going away anytime soon. Right. I mean, 51% of Americans reported having listened to a podcast at least once in their lives. I mean, that's right. that's not a suggestion of a podcasting habit, obviously, but it is more than half, and more than half feels like something. Right. It does feel like something, and also podcast awareness uh, is up to like more than three quarters of Americans. But the sort of primary metric to take a look at is the sort of monthly listening numbers. Um, and it's currently pegged to about like a third of Americans are not have like listened to a podcast in the past month. And this is largely interpreted to be like um, they can be sort of roughly thought of as monthly listeners at this point. And I don't have it in front of me, but I seem to recall from your newsletter that there was a little bit of information about how many podcasts some regular podcast users are, are listening to. I mean, you know, I mean, there one of the things podcasting needs to do is move beyond you know, serial or, or or any other one podcast being the only podcast. You sort of want to see people have a diet of them. Uh, do we know a little bit more about that at this point? Absolutely. So the study mentioned that um, the number, the sort of average number of podcasts consumed in a week by um, sort of Americans who report themselves to be weekly podcast listeners is seven. And it's uh, so that's seven uh, podcasts on average a week. 
And this has um, stayed the same over the past sort of two study periods now. But a notable thing about this is that it stayed the same despite the fact that the overall number of weekly listeners and the overall number of Amer- like podcast consumers in America has also increased, which suggests that when Americans like get converted into podcast listeners, they really, really get converted to, into a podcast listener. Right. You say that this moment right here, this Edison study, feels like uh, the end of the era, the kind of maybe the on-ramp era that began in 2014 when Serial came out. People who had never really sought out a podcast sought out a podcast. It, it feels maybe like we're all the way up the on-ramp and seeing people pour out onto the hi- highway now. Right. It kind of feels, and we're sort of talking to a lot of, like, critics about this and a lot of other sort of people have covered um, smaller emerging sort of art scenes or creative scenes. It really does feel like one of those things where like a small indie scene is beginning to sort of show like traction. And I feel like over the next year, two, three years, uh, we're going to see sort of the real influx of big business. Um, and, it, you know, and it's sort of it's going to push this uh, medium and this community into uh, sort of a realm that's never been before. And we're going to have to sort of ask a lot of questions about um, you know, who is a part of this community um, and, and how business gets started here and sort of how we should think about the media moving forward. So th- that's a good transition to one of the other big pieces of news. You've been tracking this for a really long time. Most people don't know about it yet. It's something called Luminary. It is typically referred to as the Netflix of podcasts. So tell us about that. Right. So Luminary is, um, they've, it's a sort of up and coming, so it's, it's an upcoming podcast platform that's supposed to be uh, that's per- primarily to provide paid exclusive podcasts. And so they're really, really sticking and doubling down on this Netflix analogy. Um, and it should be noted that there, this isn't the first time that um, a, a company has tried this before, most notably Stitcher, which is one of the bigger uh, podcast publishers and sort of advertising networks. They have an app called Stitcher Premium that um, sort of dabbles in exclusive content. This this is a really, really big play. that, that This company has raised $100 million to essentially build out a, a portfolio of podcasts that they're, they're sort of betting people will want to pay $8 a month for. Um, and this is, it's, it's a lot of money. We haven't seen this much money spent on a, on a sort of strategy like this before, but it's also caused a little bit of rift in the community um, because it does like the sort of closed paid nature of it challenges one of the sort of core ideological tenets of podcasting, which is it's supposed to be free, it's supposed to be open, and it's supposed to be accessible um, by by everybody and every and anybody's able to sort of publish something into the podcast ecosystem. So on the one hand, you have this sort of really pivotal, interesting moment in the business of podcasting, but you also have something a bit of like a like an identity crisis. It's a conflict point for sure. Right, and there, I I think that's a, a great point. But one of the ways that they've dealt with that is to really you know they've rounded up some of the really big names, people who whose work you do want to continue to hear, whether that's Adam Davidson, who's a good friend of our show, Guy Raz, Slow Burns, Leon Nafak. I mean, I I I'll pay eight dollars a month not to miss what Leon Nafak does uh, uh, next, uh, Jacob Weisberg, Malcolm Gladwell, Lena Dunham. I mean, these are, these are Alex Gibney. These are people who, whose work you really do want to hear. And, and if there's some kind of threshold you have to get over uh, to be willing to pay $8 a month, I would say for a lot of people, people like me anyway, are really going to want to do this. So I, I agree. Like, I also really want to like, listen to what Leon Nafak does next. I really, I'm really curious to hear what Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell's next project is. Um, there, there are a number of names in that original roster 
that sort of is really interesting to me. And, I, and I'm sort of, I will, even if I wasn't covering this space, I would probably pay $8 to check it out. The question is sort of like, will I stay paying $8 after the first two months, right? Um, a lot of these publishers, these big name publishers that, uh, that they've signed products with, aren't exactly like um, exclusive. Like, for example, Guy Raz has four, three or four other podcasts that exists everywhere else and sort of, well, I really want to pay $8 for his fourth project. Am I, am I like a super Guy Raz fan? And it's also a situation in which like once I've gone through, um, you know, the Onafax season, Malcolm Gladwell's new season or whatever he does, um, will I, will there be enough for me to stick around? And that's, that's really the sort of game here. Um, and it's also, you know, it's, it's, can they build a supply chain that, that can really control sort of a, a, mo- a momentum of excitement for the consumer, for the listener? Um, and can they sort of actually make this a, a viable business? Um, $100 million, again, is, is a ton of money that's raised. And I imagine that they have really, really specific and strict um, sort of benchmark they must hit um, over a, a specific timeline. So it, it's, to me, it feels like a huge high-risk, high-wire act. Um, but at the very least, uh, you know, some some publishers are going to get paid pretty well for this. Right. So one of the things that this would do away with is, and it's kind of interesting, podcasting being such a new medium, in a way it uh, resembles the older kind of radio, the pre this radio radio. I worked in commercial radio for a really long time and I used to do ads. I used to do, they were called live reads and, you know, I would do them. I'd put them in my own words, my own voice. Uh, and this happens a lot. I mean, we were just talking to Jessica Harper about Winnetka. Well, I mean, in the middle of what she's doing, she'll suddenly do a Geico ad. And, you know, some of the podcasters are really kind of good at this. I mean, Mike, Mike Pesca can transition pretty easily uh, into doing an ad. But people often are trying to run away from advertising these days. And I guess that's one of the big arguments for Luminary, right, that you don't have to deal with ads. Well, I mean, that's one version of the argument. I've always found that sort of like, I think the reality here is that people aren't running away from ads. They're running away from like bad ads. And I think the reality is the majority of advertising experiences in our daily life, whether it's television or a billboard, or if you go to South by one of those brand activations that kind of hit you in the face, it's really assaulting and it's really sort of oppressive. And the thing about uh, podcasting and its particular sort of interpretation of advertising is that it's been able to provide an experience that does feel, you know, intimate and authentic to a lot of listeners. And it's been able to show like real value to advertisers over time um, while balancing sort of a dignity and a respect to the listener. Um, so to a large extent, Luminary trying to solve a problem that isn't really a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are, they, and I would argue that there are many other problems that they are very, very well suited to solving. One example of this is the fact that it's really hard to make a highly produced, resource-intensive eight-episode project and have that be adequately financed by advertising because just the way advertising works, it, it kind of privileges shows that are ongoing. And so Luminary is in a position to help shows like that. But I can't tell from the outset whether they, they, they see that lane as, as a viable one. So let's uh, talk about the the third and final topic uh, that I wanted to bring up with you and Nikwa. There's something else that Hot Pot has been covering. I think Caroline Crampton, uh, your partner at Hot Pot, has uh, uh, been writing about this a lot. And that is the notion of podcaster burnout. There are an awful lot of people who do podcasts in addition to something else that's kind of their main gig. Um, there are a lot of – it seems – at the beginning, maybe like this will fit pretty easily into somebody's workload. But but what are you guys beginning to see about this? Uh, we're beginning to see. So it's 
the one of the really interesting sort of feedback we've gotten is from a lot of readers who are in parallel industries, whether they are journalists or filmmakers or writers. Um, they kind of made the argument that if you swap out podcasts with any other creative medium, you have like pretty much the same story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it does feel like podcasting is hitting this moment where it used to be this sort of labor of love, um, where there isn't sort of the attraction of have, like, of doing this for a ton of money or being validated, um, you know, with successful sort of like write-ups or coverage in, 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 the, in press and whatever. And so you have this situation in which there, there's a generation of these hobbyists uh, all the way up to professional creators who are sort of um, experiencing a shift in expectations. And um, as they do this longer and sort of, you know, proceed, continue to, to, you know, spill blood and sweat over the work, that they are beginning to sort of really question why they're doing this. And, it, and it's really, really taxing because podcasting is in between this place where it's figured the business side out and it's figured out other parts of getting in front of people and all that and, and building systems recognition. But, um, but we're not quite there yet. And as a result, um, a lot of podcasters, I think, right now moving forward and feeling that they are working and they're not seeing a time coming back for, for, the, for the things that they're working on. Right. I mean, a lot of it depends on what you thought was going to happen in the first place. If, place, if you thought uh, that you were going to put this stuff on the air, put your work on the air, or not, not on the air, but on the, in the podcasting platforms, and get discovered uh, and get paid a lot of money. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some people who just like, you know, they want to do a Game of Thrones podcast, and they don't even care that there's, I don't know how many, you know, there's 70 other Game of Thrones podcast that'll be competing for the same audience starting in April, if not sooner. They, they just want to do it, you know. And and I, for those people, I, I suppose it's probably relatively easy to drop it too if it becomes a huge pain in the neck. Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 kind of an age-old question of you know, and uh, a creative or art project or a project of sort of expression isn't necessarily a good uh, business, mm-hmm. and the sort of tension there often leads to you know, the sort of roots of these burnouts, I think. Yeah. Well, we'll have to, we'll monitor that, and we hope uh, there's not too much burnout. Nicholas Kwa, editor and publisher of Hot Pod, a newsletter about podcasts. Thanks for joining me today. Always a pleasure. All right. And that wraps up our show today, too. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'll be interested to hear if you seek out Winnetka, Jessica Harper's new memoir podcast. 